Hello, welcome to Political as Heck, the uh, 4th of July edition. This is a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. And I'm Corey Astle, and you're Todd Weiler. Hey, Todd. Hey, Corey. Um, 3rd of July, but, you know, not to be too technical. John Adams thought we would celebrate Independence Day on July 2nd, just to be clear. So that was kind of fun. Oh, that was interesting. All right, so we had a lot of fun last week. We had a primary election here in Utah. Lots of interesting results. I want to take these one at a time. So let's start with the federal races, then we'll move the state legislature races, and then take a look at the local races. I think there's really interesting and fun stuff across the board. So starting with federal, Blake Moore in the first district, he got signatures, but had he not gotten signatures, he was, uh, he was a, a whisker away from being uh, eliminated, would have been, got uh, like exactly uh, like 40.1% or something like that. Uh, he, he ran away with this, completely destroyed. Andrew Badger, Chris Stewart also destroyed. Uh, Curtis ran away with it, even though he lost a convention. It wasn't even close. And Burgess Owens, I'm not sure Burgess really re- spent much time campaigning. I mean, he was around and uh, and he easily won as well. Although I'd say Jake Hunsaker did a lot better than I thought he would. I, I thought he would score somewhere in the teens or the 20s, and he got in the upper 30s, which was interesting. But uh, but the big the big one. Um, Mike Lee, you and I had a wager whether he would get 60% or not. He did. He got 62%. Let's see. Becky Edwards got about 30 and, uh, and Allie Isom got 8%. So interest, very interesting results. I mean, I, my biggest takeaway in this, this is, this will stand true for the state legislature as well as the local is that the biggest takeaway is that the insurgents got destroyed and, uh, and, and those that tried to run to the left of of the incumbents they got beat too so we could say well this is just this is just incumbents are very difficult to beat and i think that's probably right the incumbents had a lot of money and the insurgents really did not uh, i mean becky edwards had four hundred thousand dollars of her own money that's quite a bit that's certainly enough to compete but she was trying to run to the left of uh, of mike lee which was never going to work and and for the others uh you know they had convention challengers for uh, uh, Blake Moore, Curtis had convention uh, challengers run to the right. They lost the convention and then easily win. So partially you could say the maybe the the convention goers, the delegates are more conservative. And I think that's certainly true. Uh, but I also think that uh, that Chris Herod and Andrew Badger raised no money, didn't get their message out at all. It would be more interesting if they had. They probably still would have lost probably badly but it would have made it more interesting. Anyway, what do you think, Todd, about the federal races? Well, I think there were no surprises here. I was wrong. I thought Lee would come in like at 58 or 59%, but I'm not going to accept any responsibility. Uh, I'm going to blame my friend, Ali Isom, because <laughs> I calculate, I really thought, and I've been telling people this for a while, I thought Becky would get about 30%, and she did. She's probably 29 point something, uh, but she kind of landed where I thought, but I really thought Ali Isom would do better. And, you know, her coming in at 8%, I thought she'd yeah. get up to 12 or 13, which is why I thought that uh, uh, Lee would end up with about 58%. And so, um, and I think Allie uh, did her best. I think she's a great uh, person. And, but I, I think trying to run as a conservative against Mike Lee, when you had a, a more moderate candidate in the race, it, it just, it just didn't work out. Um, 
And uh, I think she kind of got squeezed out. I think the conservatives went for Mike. I think the moderates went for Becky. And Allie was just kind of um, watching those two uh, duke it out. So, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the other races, I, I never thought Jake Hunsicker or Andrew Badger had a chance or Aaron Ryder. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I mean, they, they all seem like, um, well, most of them seem like they're good people. I, I watch their debates. I listen to their podcasts, like, you know, Heidi Hatch from KUTV interviewed most of them. And, um, you know, I always learn something from them, but um, let's be honest, uh, those incumbents were never in any serious threat. And, you know, part of being an incumbent running for re-election is you have to at least pretend like, um, like you know, that the race is close. But uh, Burgess Owens yeah. did not get that memo. He did not <laughs> pretend like his race was close and he refused to debate. Even when he did the podcast with Heidi Hatch, he was still in D.C. just dialing it in. And, you know, I um, it's just interesting. But, you know, I think ultimately voters are, uh, you know, don't didn't care about that, at least this in June of 2022. So, yeah, yeah. All right, state legislature, your backyard. So, again, I think the standout takeaway is that the insurgents mostly lost. The traditional Republican incumbents won almost across the board. So you had Ray Ward, you had uh, your friend Ann Milner, you had Evan Vickers, you had Melissa Ballard. Uh, Grover uh, beat uh, Brandon Beckham, which was a really interesting race here. Yeah. I, I was amazed was that Brandon just, did as well as he, as he seemed like he was really surging and then he got completely annihilated. Yeah. The one that was the most interesting to me, though, was Stenquist holding out against uh, Carolyn Fippen. I, I thought I thought that Carolyn would win, but that was my biggest surprise. Was, so the Stenquist race, this is down in Draper for the, the Utah House. This is Greg Curtis's uh, former seat. So Greg Curtis actually recruited Jeff Stenquist to run. Jeff is a former Draper City Council man and uh, has served, I think, for just four years. And then Greg Hughes turns around and, and recruits Carolyn Fippen to run against him and endorsed her and he used his, you know, campaign um, resources uh, to help Carolyn. And, you know, it's a close race. It's been narrowing, but, you know, Stenquist is going to win. I think it's, it started off by 8%, uh, 8 to 10%. Uh, it's closer to 6% now. And Carolyn Pippen's a great person. She's, um, she clearly ran to the right of Jeff Stenquist. And, and the weird thing about this is Jeff is not a moderate. Jeff is pretty solid conservative. Um, but, uh, that was my biggest surprise because everyone seemed to think that Stenquist was going to lose and, and it turns out he won. The other race that I was kind of watching closely was Kelly Miles. He's up in, in, in Weber County and he did lose, uh, to his more conservative opponent. So on the Republican side, the only incumbents who lost in the primary, cause we had Steve Handy lose at convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the only Republican that lost in the primary was Kelly Miles in Weber County. His, his district actually bleeds down to a little bit into Davis County. But on the on the Democratic side, um, Gene Davis was annihilated by his Democratic liberal um, uh, challenger, Nate Blauen, who is a young guy, millennial, and uh, will be, you know, I'll get to work with him uh, next session. Gene had been in the legislature for 35 years, um, over about 24 of that in the Senate. Um, and so, I mean, I think it'd be easy to make a case that, you know, his time was done. And then it looked like that uh, Derek Kitchen was going to eke out the, the narrowest of victories over Jen, Dr. Jen Plum, who he had beat by about 500 votes in a primary four years ago. But lo and behold, that race is now flipped and 
Jen Plum is up by a whopping 51 votes. Um, and uh, there's just not that many votes left to count. And so um, as close as that is, uh, and, and the later votes have tended to trend slightly in favor of Jen Plum. Um, so I'm going to predict, I'm going to uh, guess that she wins that race. And that was my guess a month ago and a week ago, but I just, uh, Derek did come out on top on Tuesday night. Um, that might sound familiar because Trump came out initially on top and then that, and then his race flipped. And I know there's that generally a lot of controversy, but um, this race might be decided by 35 votes. It, it could tighten a little bit more, but I don't think uh, Derek Kitchen's going to be able to catch her. But as close as that race is, there are three races for the house and down in St. George, uh, Neil Walter beat Christy Pike, 63 to 36% in House District 74. I think Christy Pike is the um, the spouse of the former mayor of St. George named John Pike, and he's now in the governor's cabinet. But the real the real squeaker, well, Colin Jack has beaten Nina, Nina Barnes, also 63 to 36. Colin is, uh, that's for Travis Siegmiller's seat, and Colin's already been sworn in as a temporary replacement. But House District 72, Joseph Elison, right now, Corey, is beating Willie Billings in the GOP primary by one vote. And wow. I'm not making this up. It is wow. 4,091 wow. votes to 4,090. And this has flipped back and forth two or three times over the last week. I know Willie Billings. I don't know Joseph Ellison. I hope I'm saying his last name right. It might be Ellison. But um, wow, uh, this this could go this this I mean, there's probably a handful of votes that will get, get to, announced on Tuesday. And this one clearly can go either way when it's just one vote. So um, another interesting race that I was kind of watching because of all the media attention is um, Cindy Davis was challenged by Del Grosso. Del Grosso. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for the state school board position in Utah County. And I'll be honest with you. I thought Del Grosso would win that. Um, she got a lot of publicity on some of her comments about uh, transgender sports, and she appeared to be the more conservative, and this is in Utah County. Cindy Davis won, you know, by a comfortable margin, about 8%. And the other other interesting race, I have to put in a plug for my nephew, Brandon Gordon, my wife's nephew. Brandon Gordon is currently leading um, Bill Leaf in the Utah County commissioner's race by about 2,000 votes, and I think that one's over. So, yeah. um, But, you know, overall, Corey, the, the interesting thing is a lot of the challenges from what I would call the far right um, failed. Um, the, the one against Kelly Miles uh, succeeded, and that was about it. <laughs> so, you know, these races down in St. George that I just covered, I think all of those candidates um, were, you know, are pretty conservative down there in Washington County. But um, in, in any, I, and yeah. I don't know most of those candidates personally. That seems to be the case. And you, it's a fascinating uh, turn of events that it was actually the the, the Democratic seats where the more progressive challenger won. And when it comes to the Republican seats, by and large, the, the traditional Republican incumbents won. And it's just interesting just to, to talk about media narratives. I've never heard, I haven't heard any media narrative about uh, progressives on the march in, in Salt Lake County, and it seems like they are. But anyway, picking up on a, a couple of the local races you were talking about, uh, I was also surprised that, uh, that uh, Del Grosso um, that Cindy Davis held on in that school board seat. The biggest, uh, probably the most important of the night for local, though, was Jeff Gray beat David Levitt for Utah County AG. He, he didn't. David beat Levitt him. needed he, to he lose so him. badly. And uh, and remember that uh, 
that the other uh that the other convention winner um uh adam shoot i'm forgetting his last name but anyway uh, pomeroy pomeroy yeah adam pomeroy great guy uh excellent guy and jeff gray uh but adam uh took one for for the republic by uh, stepping down to make sure that that uh we could get a one-on-one versus david levitt turned out that uh, adam could have stayed in the race and and david levitt almost for sure still would have lost because uh, yeah enough folks to go around but anyway that you know, was big I, that was good <laughs> i'm not surprised that levitt lost i am surprised by the margin this is the younger brother of mike levitt the former governor and bush cabinet member and this was the this was a, a nominee for utah attorney general state this david levitt was on the ballot two years ago was against john reyes and he lost but it was a respectable loss. I think he got, I don't know, over 40% in a statewide race. So I thought his pure name ID might pull him, you know, yeah. in a close And race. money. I mean, he has spent uh, both he's calendars spent by like 5X or something. Yeah. Six X. yeah. So, a lot of money. I mean, there's one. And uh, also in Utah County, um, Amelia Gardner won over the, the more Renee named tribe. Sergeant Renee Tribe. Renee. That that was yeah. also big news. But but again, your, uh, your, your wife's nephew, Brandon Gordon, beat Bill Lee. And I don't, I'm not going to, I mean, Brandon seems perfectly conservative to me, very conservative, but certainly yeah. he would be viewed as the, the less, uh, you know. Uh, it's hard to be more conservative than Bill Lee. <laughs> right. We can agree I mean, on that. Bill Lee is certainly like, even though he was the incumbent, he, you know, he's, he's, I think his stripe is more, uh, more analogous to the, to the insurgents in this race. So, and Brandon won in Utah County. We're not talking about uh, Summit County. This is Utah County. So, Yeah. So I, well, I it, it seems to me so Mike Smith, Sheriff Mike Smith in, in Utah County, who does not have a, did not have a Republican challenger. He was backing Brandon. I think he was backing Amelia and he was backing um, uh, David Levitt's opponent. So and Brandon kept on telling me, oh, you know, Mike Smith's backing me. And I'm, I'm thinking in my back of my head, I'm like, well, I mean, he's just the county sheriff, but apparently he's got some real gravitas down there. So, well, I think that's part of it. And I think that uh, some others were uh, quietly also very supportive of Brandon and actually you'd probably say, you know, looking for ways to, to beat bill. So, but that's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's probably the, the gossip for, for another time. All right. So for, to finish off these elections, uh, moving into the, the general election, oh, I, Mike I, Lee I, is going to go head to head against McMullen. Yes. I'm going to put the, uh, the over under at 55. I personally think that, uh, that Mike Lee is going to get 57, 58%. That's my, that's my prediction, but the over under at fifty five. Are you over or are you under? I'm gonna I'm gonna take the under as long as I get fifty five. So fifty five okay, or fifty five, yeah, fifty five. And under. you know it might be fifty six or fifty seven. But here's the thing: Mike Lee got seventy one percent at convention. He got sixty two percent in the primary. There's no way he's over sixty two, right? So it's got to go down. Yeah. So the question is: Does it go down six or does it go down seven? So if it go down seven, uh, you know. And I, it's not, I don't think a lot of people are going to vote for Evan McMullen per se. I think they're going to vote against Mike Lee and Mike Lee, like David Levitt and like a lot of Bill Lee and a lot of other incumbents, you know, in politics, your friends come and go, but your enemies accumulate. Mike Lee's, uh, Mike Lee's has accumulated some enemies and they will, they'll vote for anybody to vote against him. But I, I mean, he's clearly going to win. I don't think the seat is in question. I don't think it's within three points. We talked about that. Deseret News poll from like two weeks ago. Um, but I do think, I mean, traditionally, I would expect a Democrat for Senate, for U.S. Senate, to get about 30 or 31%. Evan, uh, Evan McMullen will likely do better than that. 
because he's going to pull some, some Democrats, not all of them. He's going to pull some independents who don't like Mike Lee. And he's got a few. Uh, he's probably going to pull some of those Becky Edwards Republicans. And I think the interesting thing will be, you know, does Becky Edwards, you know, she got 30 percent. That's She got a lot of votes. She got over 100,000 votes statewide. Um, does she endorse uh, Evan McMullen or does she stay out of the race? Yeah, uh, that's no, that is much. And I don't think it makes a difference. I think Mike Lee wins with or without. But if Becky wants to, you know, maybe keep her uh, options open for a run for Mitt Romney's seat in two years, I think she'd be smart to, to either endorse Mike Lee or just stay quiet. But if she endorses Evan McMullen, I think um, I don't think that bodes well for her in Republican primaries in the future. Definitely agree with that. And I, I, I call on her and, uh, and Allie, who's, uh, I've said before, is a good friend of mine, call on them both to uh, support the nominee. And uh, I I think that Mike Lee, you know, had either one of them one should support them too. And all, uh, all of their supporters should, should support the nominee. So I, we, we call on them today to do that. All right, moving to another topic. Now, this is a this is a federal topic, but I just think it's so important because it got lost in uh, in the noise of the abortion ruling. The Supreme Court also issued another ruling, a long-awaited decision called West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency against the EPA. This really is a landmark decision. It's worth noting. It will have such far-reaching effects for both environmental law, but even more importantly, the administrative state. So I think it's worth mentioning here. Here's the story. In 2015, the Obama EPA finalized an administrative rule to regulate carbon dioxide emissions. This is climate change, uh, but these are CO2 emissions from coal-fired power plants. They called it the Clean Power Plan. And the Clean Power Plan ostensibly takes its authority from the Clean Air Act. The Clean Air Act, for those who don't know, regulates pollutants such as particulate matter and mercury. It says nothing at all about carbon dioxide, which is not a pollutant, actually, Perhaps, perhaps in the aggregate, we could say it's problematic, but in and of itself, CO2, it's a natural part of our world, obviously what humans exhale and plants inhale. The Clean Air Act says nothing and implies absolutely nothing about climate change or the regulation of carbon dioxide. So uh, Congress has conferred no pa- authority upon EPA to regulate in this space, none at all. And as such, the Clean, clean Power Plan really was a breathtaking power grab. It was totally illegal. But... The rule wasn't fully implemented by the end of the Obama administration and the Trump administration withdrew the rule, killed it right away as they should have. That's why it's taken so long for the court to consider it. Usually the Supreme Court and actually any of the courts don't usually review withdrawn rules, considering them uh, moot. But in this case, there was more at stake and I'm glad they did. Um, The larger issue is not so much the EPA's authority to regulate climate climate, uh, emissions, but the bigger issue is what, what has come to be known as the major questions doctrine. And in some, the Supreme Court is now saying that if an agency seeks to decide an issue of major national significance, that action must be supported by clear statutory authorization. Congress must have passed a law to give them that authority. Put simply, the court in a 2001 case said, Congress uh, can't hide elephants in mouse holes, which is, uh, you know, Seems like common sense, but the law of the land really has been allowing the Obama administration, the Biden Biden administration to take these obscure lines and turn them into this massive power. 
And the clean power plan is a big fat elephant. Other major actions that would would be like this is like the SEC, the, the ESG rulemaking, something that uh, that our treasurer is talking about a lot. The SEC has no explicit authority to reorder the entire rating system to, to preference companies and state bondholders. Those that are that follow the radical progressive doctrines, none at all. But they've been able to do it because the courts have just said, okay, go ahead. Others would be like net neutrality, which regulates the internet, or DACA, allowing illegal, uh, illegal immigrants to stay forever, or OSHA declaring an employee vaccine mandate. I mean, each of these actions have been taken by Democratic administrations, the Obama administration, the Biden administration, without explicit authority in law. And whether you like them or not, I'm sure some folks uh, like maybe DACA, I don't know. But in any case, Congress never granted these authorities. The Democratic administrative state has just taken them. So up to this point, the courts have allowed them to do it. With this case, the Supreme Court finally said, wait a minute. You need to show, actually, that Congress gave you the power to do this before you can go, go ahead and overhaul an entire sector of the economy. And I think it's one of the most it's the sharpest, most consequential rulings coming from the court. One of the one of the biggest in my lifetime. And I applaud it in the strongest terms. I thought we needed to note it here. We finally have a court that respects the Constitution and the separation of powers. We finally have a woman and men of courage on the court who will stand against the endless encroachment of the administrative state. I say bravo. It's a great day in America. And I just wanted to highlight that fact. It's huge. It's going to make a huge difference. It's not going to allow uh, Democrat administrations moving forward to make these massive power grabs. Todd, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm in mostly in, in agreement with you. So I do believe that climate change is real. Um, I also believe it's overhyped. And I'm not sure that we can change it or stop it as easily as the Democrats think that we can. But what's interesting to me, this was clearly the right decision. Um, what's interesting to me is the Democrats and the liberals who are upset about this. They're not arguing, Corey, that Congress did delegate this authority right. to EPA. They're arguing we don't we we don't like climate change. We we don't like CO two. We don't like um, you know refineries and petroleum companies. And therefore, we want the Supreme Court to adopt our policy position. Exactly. Um, and it's the same thing with Roe versus Wade, if I could just say, I'm not hearing the case being made that the Constitution does um, give a woman the right to terminate a pregnancy. What I'm hearing is we like abortion, therefore the Supreme Court should play whatever tricks they need to to say that abortion's a constitutional right, you know, and, and it's somewhat similar here. And then to even lose more um, uh, uh credibility, many liberals and Democrats are saying, oh, the Supreme Court is um, uh, hypocritical because when New York has a gun law, a local gun law, they overrule that. So they're saying the federals, you know, uh, should decide local issues when it comes to guns, but not with abortion or uh, climate change. No, the difference there is not saying that locals don't have authority. The difference there, unlike uh, CO2 and unlike abortion, the the right to keep and bear arms is actually part of the constitution and so uh and for those of you that you know missed fifth grade uh when the states when the 13 colonies uh created the federal government back in you know 1787 they kept all the rights that were not specifically enumerated to the federal government for themselves that would include abortion that would include um you know 
it may include CO2, it may not, but Congress has to give that authority to an agency. So what, what Congress has broken, we all know that you, you, you've worked with Congress a lot more than I have, but what we now have is we have a lot of liberals and, and progressives are saying, well, um, ignore Congress. We just want the president to do an executive order for what we want, or we want an agency like the EPA just to pretend like they have the authority and do it. And so this is clearly the correct decision under the constitution. And I, and I totally agree with you. We can, we can debate all these issues. We can debate climate change. We can debate the dreamers. We can debate like uh, vaccines. And I have my views and you have yours and everyone does who's, who's listening right now. But that's not the point. The point is Cong- Congress never gave them the authority. They don't have the authority to do it. And it's just lawless. And uh, I, I find it to be terribly frustrating. And, I, and I'm just really glad that we have a court that's willing to stand up and say, actually, no, you don't have the authority to do that. All right, so we have uh, a couple minutes left. Let's talk about the Pac-12 implosion. Go, Todd. You mean the Pac-10? The Pac-10? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, I mean, I'm a BYU fan, so that I take a little bit of – this is a little bit fun, more fun for me to watch than it should be. But the Pac-12, I don't know if imploded is the word. They lost um, UCLA and USC, which are the two uh, – I mean, the, the L.A. – TV market is the second largest TV market in the country. And so that is kind of the heart and soul of the profit margin for the PAC 12, because that's the biggest TV market. But what we're probably going to see is the re, the re, remaining remnants of the PAC 12 either merge with the big 12, which would put Utah back into the same conference as BYU, which would be kind of fun. Or with uh, with some remnants of the Mountain West, which I think if, if that's the case, uh, BYU fans are going to get bragging rights for you against Utah <laughs> for the next decade. But we'll, yeah. we'll have to. I mean, USC, remember, L.A., even though it is the second largest media market, didn't have a football team for about a decade. Uh, now uh, they have professional, two. For pre- professional, professional football team. Football. Yeah. yeah. So now, now, I mean, now they have the, the Chargers and the Rams, but before that USC was the only game in town. So yeah. it was, uh, you have a lot of USC fans in, in, in LA and UCLA obviously is more of a basketball school, but still. And what's interesting to me is, you know, like, of course I feel the same way as a BYU fan of not so much about Utah. I don't care one way or the other, but, but about the PAC 12 and I just think they're anti-religious. And so it doesn't hurt my feelings that, you know, they're going to take it, take it in the chin Utah, though, is interesting. There's a lot of a lot of conversation about how Utah is the powerhouse in the conference, and that in football they're doing well for sure. But I, I don't know that I would be banking on a, a Big Ten uh, invite. Uh, you know, if I were a Ute fan, it's you're probably best bet is going to be to get into the Big Twelve um, if if and when Oregon and Washington both. Well, even you know the Big Twelve is the best basketball conference in the country right now, and Utah's basketball team. They're getting better, but they're still yeah, pretty they're t- horrible. I mean, baseball team. Yeah. under Rick Majerus, they were great, right? But the program like completely fell apart after Rick Majerus left. I mean, in, in any event, so I think Utah uh, is an attractive commodity for football only. Their only other really good sport right now, I think, is women's gymnastics, which gymnastics. quite frankly doesn't mean a lot to a conference. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, and most of those schools aren't, aren't going to have gymnastics programs anyway. But. Yeah. All right. That's it. Thanks, Corey. We'll see you next week. Thank you.